to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. You know, people will say, how did you live through that? How are you so strong? And it's like, I literally had no choice. It was forced upon me. I had it happen. And I still needed to look after this little two-month-old baby who was looking up at me, not knowing any different. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. Rachel Casella is a mother, a wife and a friend. She's also a pioneer for parents when it comes to genetic testing for their unborn children. Rachel has lived through every parent's worst nightmare. Somehow through her grief, she's managed to find purpose and fight and has created incredible opportunity for Australians through Mackenzie's mission. This was a conversation I had huge resistance towards. To put it bluntly, I just didn't want to do it. But I knew because of that, I had to have this conversation. It's an incredibly tough episode today. But if Rachel can survive such pain, we can at least sit with her through it. Content warning. If you're suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. Rachel, you have such a fascinating story. You are quite well known to some people in the media or social media world, but not not for a, a, a positive reason. Would you say that? Yes, absolutely not. Can we can we start by talking about Mackenzie? I would love to. I love speaking about her. Tell me a bit about your pregnancy and your birth. Sure. So I met Johnny when I was 30, so we moved our relationship quite quickly um, and we started trying for a baby on our honeymoon um, <laughs> and the timings lined up and everything was great, but of a couple of months um, it wasn't working and um, being the sort of type A personality that I am, I went and started getting ovulation tracking um, mm-hmm. after two months. Um, and found out we were actually having sex like a week too late because uh, I ovulated early. So we got pregnant straight away on that first month after doing the tracking. And we got uh, we got pregnant and unfortunately we lost that baby at six weeks. Um, the very next month we got pregnant again and that was wow. Mackenzie. Um, and the pregnancy was beautiful. Like I... I almost felt guilty when people were asking me how I was going because I was like, I don't know what people complain about this pregnancy thing. This is great. <laughs> like, um, like I know it's, I know it's so hard for some people. I know, but 
like my, you know, the back pain that I always had had disappeared and I was eating fruit salad all the time, which is very much not like me. And I was just loving it, loving life. Um, so it was a great pregnancy. I had a bit of reduced fetal movements a couple of weeks, sort of from about 38 weeks, um, and gone to the hospital a couple of times just to get it checked out. Um, everything was fine, but they thought, oh, well, if you're feeling this, then sometimes it's things that we can't measure. So I actually got induced on the day that she was due. I remember it as being a beautiful birth, but my parents who were there and my husband, Jonathan, don't remember it that way. Um, <laughs> it was a 40-hour labour and um, after 40 hours I pushed for two hours and she hadn't gone anywhere because it turned out she was stuck in my pelvis. So I ended up having an emergency C-section after the 42 hours of hard work. But she was here and she was in my arms and as far as I was concerned it was a, a great birth and she was just perfect. Yeah. Oh. And you take her home and you do all those kind of routine tests in the hospital and you take her home and how is life? Life is beautiful. We were like, we were just on cloud nine. Johnny took eight weeks off of work, partially because of the C-section, but partially just because he wanted that time with Kenzie. And we just did everything that we had planned. Like, you know, we Everything was just a milestone and was beautiful, like taking her out and putting her in the carrier for the first time and taking out for our first takeaway coffee and everything was just bliss. Um, Johnny went back to work after eight weeks and um, sort of Kenzie and I got into a bit of a rhythm together, but we only got that rhythm for two weeks and then everything just shattered. What happened at 10 weeks? I was advised by someone in the hospital, I was just a lactation consultant that I was speaking to, said that she wasn't moving the way that she should. Um, she told me what she should be doing and pointed out to me another another baby. Um, um, he was just holding himself in a way that Kenzie never had. And I rushed her to a local GP, um, but it wasn't someone had never been to before. And just sort of panicking, just really panicking that something was wrong. And it took, so between being told that she wasn't moving properly, within two days she had been diagnosed with a terminal condition. It just came out of absolute nowhere. Um, it was so fast. We went, we saw a paediatrician and then a neurologist and they both, said that they were pretty sure that she had spinal muscular atrophy, which is a motor neuron condition. And, you know, we're just asking what what the cure is and just being told that there there is no cure and that it was it was terminal. Was something missed through the pregnancy or through that initial time at the hospital or is this something that can really only be shown through the first few months? Nothing was missed in terms of what could be done at the time. Um, we've tried really hard to change that so things would be picked up earlier um, even before conception now um, but 
at the time everything everyone did everything that they could do she had every test we had had the nip test when we were pregnant so the non-invasive prenatal testing to check for chromosome conditions we had that at 10 weeks pregnant with her we had had all the down syndrome testing like again the chromosome condition testing she had the newborn heel prick test um, but with SMA there's different types the most common is type 1 which is what Kenzie had type 0 babies would die pretty much on birth and type 1 the um, the symptoms come on in the first few months of life so and that's what happened with with Mackenzie can you take me like I I can't even imagine but can you take me through the day or even the days between the baby is you're being told the baby's not moving or isn't developed the way it should be to that diagnosis like tell me what that's like um it's like torture it's like living in purgatory we um Johnny was really sort of saying initially it's all right it's going to be fine um you know it's just a we just need to do more tummy time like she's just she might just have a delay like it was just sort of we weren't even thinking in the category of terminal like it just wasn't even on our minds at all we were just going okay well something's not right they're telling us something's not right we took her home and waited because it was going to take us two weeks to see a pediatrician and luckily we found someone who would squeeze us in because I just burst out in tears on the phone um so we had to wait the next day I think it was 24 hours and we just took her home and we were just watching her every move and trying to put her on her tummy for more tummy time and trying to get her to swat things with her hands and just thinking that it was a delay like something that we had failed at um and and then after seeing the pediatrician again we had to wait the next day to see the neurologist for a confirmation but when we went to the pediatrician's office within five minutes he said I think she's got SMA and that was the first time we had ever heard the words spinal muscular atrophy we'd never heard of it before and when he said it like the room just dropped out from underneath me like I just lurched forward holding her hands not trusting myself to actually hold her but everything was wrong in that moment that I just I still can't wrap my head around that we that there are situations where we are told something so awful and that we live through it I just can't I can't the way that I felt like I was being ripped apart I couldn't understand why it wasn't actually why I was still standing I wasn't physically being ripped apart because it just seemed like I should be and you're looking at this you're looking at this little face and just so many questions like and, and like what does that even mean like yeah. what does that mean yeah and does this doctor break it down to you on the spot or what happens he was pretty abrupt which in some ways I understand because it's not a good diagnosis no matter how you say it 
Um, I wasn't a huge fan in how he delivered and how he treated us um, in the delivery. It was just so... What did he say? He said he checked her over and checked her limbs and her movement and her reflexes and then said, um, this looks like spinal muscular atrophy to me. And we said, what is that? And he said, it's terminal, it's a genetic condition. And I just remember, I don't really remember massively the conversation he had with Johnny because Johnny went into sort of panic police mode, asking questions, trying to get answers, whereas I just went into shock. And then I still remember asking him a question. I don't even remember what it was, but I remember him saying, calm down, Missy. What? Calm down, Missy? Missy? Yeah. Yeah. And I just said, you've just been, you just told me that my daughter's going to die. Don't. Don't call me Missy. Don't tell me to t- calm down. And it was um, wow. Yeah, I. That makes me feel violent. I was yeah. I was um. I was pretty upset, but I was just so focused on her and what was being told that I just wanted to get out of the office. Um, I just wanted to see someone else. And um, we were really lucky in that the neurologist that we saw after we've become very close with her and she's lovely and she just had a completely different demeanor and she was still straight to the point because she has to be um but a lot more gentle had support services around us um it was a lot more a different situation um but still yeah I just I still don't there's a couple of things that I don't really understand how, you know, people will say, how did you live through that? How are you so strong? And it's like, I literally had no choice. It was forced upon me. I had it happen and I still needed to look after this little two-month-old baby who was looking up at me, not knowing any different. Do you find out from him how long you have? No, we didn't find that out until the next day when we were speaking to the the neurologist and asking what SMA actually was because I'm such the type of person to run home and research it, Um, but I was too scared and I didn't. I didn't research it for um, a good week, I think, because I was terrified at what I would see and... um, but the next day with the neurologist, we did ask a few questions about it naturally and she had said that the maximum is that type, um, type, type 1 SMA live to is usually two years, um, but the average is eight months. So we knew that we only had a few months left with it. Um, we were offered, um, things have come very far in the last few years, but we were offered a clinical trial to put her on. Um, that day we were asked and told about it, but um, that just sort of brought on a whole new conversation that Johnny and I had to have about Mackenzie and what we believed in quality of life and 
I don't think uh, decisions that I just I really wish that I had the power to take away any parent from having to make that. I mean, you have such a short amount of time. Mm. How and the immense amount of grief and anger and all of those kind of stages of dealing with this news. You want to be a happy, positive, beautiful mum to her, right, with the time that she has Mm -hmm. left, but you also have to navigate all of these, you have to process. How do you manage that? Um, We had to really step through it um, because it was so new. Obviously, it's not something that we had ever experienced before. Um, For the first few days, I very much shut down. Um, I just, I just spent days holding her, wishing to wake up, begging her not to be true. I prayed to and wished on everything that I possibly could that we would be able to just swap. I said, you know, and you start to bargain and it's like, okay, well, I know that you can't, I can't take it completely away from her, but if you can put it into me and, you know, it's like you you don't want to ask for too much for everyone to be healthy because you start to do these weird bargainings and I just held her hoping that something would change and then when it didn't, Johnny and I had the realisation that we had this beautiful little girl in front of us who had done nothing wrong and she deserved life and we couldn't give it to her but we could give her as much of life in the short amount of time that she had and and that was really as soon as we had made that decision we I just went full throttle I knew that I had I had a purpose I had something that I could do and so we were planning passports for her to paying the emergency fees to get fast because for us travel and being able to show her the world was something that was important but we couldn't get insurance for her um, so we couldn't use that passport so instead we went we'll show her her country and Mm. um, our first trip was with Starlight Foundation they sent us over to Broome because it was winter and we wanted her to be able to feel the warm air on her skin and we just started thinking of all the things and the sensations that we could give her and it was like putting her hands in sand and putting water in, like her toes in water. And, you know, we just traveled around and we took her to bird sanctuaries and butterflies and sanctuaries and had them land on her. And we took her on a hovercraft and we just like everything that we could think of, we wanted her to experience. And we made the conscious decision that we would process what was happening when she was asleep because we wanted to be switched on when she was with us and absorbing when she was with us because she was just like the most alert beautiful little I know everyone thinks this about their child but when I think of her she's just incredible and she was so like she felt like she was so intelligent and she could have conversations with her eyes and we were like, she's going to be able to pick up on it if we're 
if we're just in the house for the next six months crying, what's that for her? How unfair. Oh, God. Like, I'm just realising through you saying this that she doesn't even get potentially um, to see different seasons. No. And the things that new parents worry about, like sleeping and (laughs) um, Mm. are they sleeping enough and are they doing this enough and like you would just be relishing every moment. Oh, yeah. It's such a different perspective, you know. We um, found it really, we, we've felt that as well so often because obviously our perspective on everything has shifted, like this goes into every single facet of your life. And um, we didn't, we knew she wouldn't get a first birthday, so we would celebrate month days with her. So on the 11th of every month, which is she was born on the 11th of March 2017, so every on the 11th we'd have, a birthday party for her and even it was just something small but we would have cake and we'd make sure that it would have some kind of icing or custard that she could suck on mm. and so I know there's so many parents that are like oh sugar all this and we're just like oh my gosh she can have what she wants like and we just loved like she would get chocolate and smushed all over her face and we just and and she never slept like she was never by uh, out of our sight, you know. If she wanted to have a daytime nap, I would never put her down. She would sleep on me, because I was like, "Well, that's what she wants, and that's what I want." So everything else can wait. Oh God, it's like ripping my soul out. Because yeah. I, I know what's coming in the story. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, um, we had just celebrated one of her month days and as you do, we were celebrating by, we took her yachting on a river down in Tasmania. <laughs> right. <laughs> she, yeah, she had a, it was so funny. We were on the, we were on the yacht and she was just in our arms and we all had a glass of champagne and some just singing to her and she was just, and we went platypus spotting and fishing and yeah, she was just she got she got that and then we flew back up to Sydney and we were moving houses because um we had moved down a bit further south in Sydney from um where we originally were in Coogee to kind of have that house and that, you know, the space and everything for our new family but we needed to move closer to Sydney Children's Hospital so we're packing up the house to move and um and my mum was packing the kitchen and Johnny was asleep um my dad was still in Tassie he was coming up soon and I was on the couch just holding her and um she just started changing colour and I screamed out to my mum to ask her to check that I wasn't seeing things and um, mum grabbed her out of my arms and I screamed to wake Johnny up and picked up the phone and called the ambulance and I don't even remember that phone call but mum was just sort of 
you know, hitting her on the back to dislodge whatever it was. And I just remember mum going to do a breath of CPR and her colour started to come back. So, you know, we just, um, we just sort of sung to her and had a chat to try to calm everything down while we waited for the ambulance. And I just remember, like, I got into the ambulance with Kenzie and she was laying on my my chest and I just was singing to her and I just remembered the the look of fear in the ambulance officer's eyes and we went lights and sirens to Sydney Children's Hospital with Johnny following and I remember going into the emergency department and there was like 20 people waiting for us including our neurologist and she just I knew I just looked at me and I just, I knew that it wasn't good. Um, we put some oxygen on her after a few hours. We managed to get up to ICU, but um, I just remember her looking up at me with these beautiful eyes, just searching for me to fix it and to stop. But I just couldn't do anything and she um eventually over the next day she fell asleep and um we never got to see her open her eyes again. Um she had developed the common cold and SMA babies can't um SMA babies can't fight things off and she had a collapsed lung. And we put a tube in to try to feed her and um, we think it nicked her stomach and she developed an internal bleed and we tried everything. But I just remember like always being pulled into that little room and having to talk about what was happening. And we just said, don't let her feel any pain, don't let her feel any pain. But we didn't realise that the more, like, the more morphine you give to try to make it comfortable, the harder it is to for them to fight, to come back. And where do you, so what do you, you know, what do you do in those decisions? Do you make them feel something in the hope that they come back for another week, month, or do you try to protect your child and make sure they don't feel anything? So um, eventually we, the doctors said they couldn't do anything more. Um, they could have, they could have intubated her maybe and put her on life support, but um, she was so tiny and she already had so many cords and I couldn't even pick her up. And Early one morning, we we were woken to say that her hemoglobin levels hadn't stabilised and the internal bleeding was still happening and we asked if we could just have a little sleep with her. So they put us in a room and they pushed beds together and we fell asleep, the three of us as a family, for the last time. And we woke up and... It was time, so we we got the doctor to take off her 
oxygen mask. And she took two little breaths. <laughs> and she was gone. <laughs> and, um, I... We washed her. And I dressed her in her clothes. And I gave her her favourite dummy clip. And... <laughs> I picked her up and... I didn't want anyone to, I didn't want anyone to take her to the morgue. I thought that that was my responsibility. So Johnny and I walked her down to the morgue and then we had to leave her. It was excruciating. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Thank you. It's so unfair. It shouldn't happen. But it happens every day and no one... It feels like no one pays attention and no one wants to talk about the fact that children die every day. It's so unfair. How old was she? She was seven months and eleven days old. <sighs> Yeah. I think she was the biggest gift of my life. Yeah. I don't even know how you go on. You know, I don't. Don't. How do you go on? I really don't know. I... The day we lost her, I went to bed and I didn't speak a word to anyone. Um, I remember um, Johnny was out. Our parents had hired us an apartment in Bondi because over the days we were in hospital, they had moved us into our new home that we never ended up getting take, get to take Kenzie to. We couldn't go back to the house with all of her stuff and with none of her memories. And we went to an apartment in Bondi and Johnny and all her parents sat in the living room and one by one they came and kissed me and I just couldn't even recognise that they were even there because she wasn't. And I just remember the next couple of days I would just sit on the balcony and look out at the water and cry and try to comprehend the fact that what do I do with myself now? Like she took up every second of my day in the most perfect way and what do I do? And I still remember... Um, so clearly Johnny and I were sitting on the balcony looking out and we realised that um, there was a bunch of uh, pod of whales that were breaching out in front of us, which was incredible. And we called our parents because the four of them were on a walk together and we said, there's whales out there. And they were directly opposite us on the other point, which we found out was called Mackenzie's Point. Don't. And they were watching the same whales. 
and we I don't know how to explain it but because I've had a really up and down relationship with spirituality and religion and understanding things especially after Kenzie but I knew from that moment that I still had her in some way um for the next few days I really just focused on doing her farewell ceremonies because I felt like I could still be her mum by doing things for her but when they were done I was broken Johnny and I got on a plane and we just flew away we didn't tell anyone except for our parents and we just left because we couldn't handle the day-to-day for that time at least with Johnny's grief Mm. do you find yourself broken together or is it that one is the strength for the other and then it kind of swings I think it's the latter I think we seem to go through different emotions at different times it's been really quite eye-opening to see grief and what it's actually like and what it means for different people and We made the decision very early on, a couple of days after Kenzie was diagnosed, Johnny turned around and said, we have to do this together, otherwise we're going to, it's going to break us. And so we were really, really careful in everything because we had to make, we had to make decisions about like resuscitation plans for her. We had to make decisions, you know, was she going to die at home or was she going to die? at a hospice or were we going to put her on this clinical trial to give us a couple more months with her or like these excruciating decisions that could easily rip a couple apart and we were so conscious of doing it together and making sure that when we talked we were had safe spaces and I think one of the benefits were we have really similar values and it allowed us to go through this together, which we are so thankful for. Um, but, yeah, we've just definitely had times where we've fallen apart and the other one's just sort of looked after the other or given them what they need. Can we talk about her, like, when she, what was the quality of life like for her before she caught the cold like she wasn't in pain no so there's no pain associated with it what it is is it's um the motor neurons in the spinal cord aren't firing to tell the muscles to move so basically she was becoming trapped in her own body um so (sighs) she couldn't move her arms and legs she well she could move her arms a little bit um and what would happen is she'd slowly lose her ability to move until she was just frozen, basically. And then she would lose the ability to eat and then lose the ability to breathe. So it's horrific. It's so cruel because we could sometimes see her looking at toys or looking at things and she just, we always wondered, you know, was she wanting to pick that up? Did she even realize that that was a possibility for others? Like, I don't. And that's one of the things that we 
were aware of when we were making decisions about things like giving her an extra couple of months. We were so conscious of the fact that she wasn't aware because she was so young, but as she grew, she would start to know. She would start to desire things that she couldn't do. But she wasn't in any pain. She, it just meant that she was always being held or cuddled, um, which mm. where we were okay with. <laughs> yeah, she just, and she still, we were really, we were lucky in that she was still a really good feeder because a lot of SMA babies struggle to, to feed. But yeah, she had a really good life. And, you know, there's, there was one of the options was that she was going to go in and out of hospital for, you know, months at a time. So I guess that's one of the other small things that we've got is that, you know, she had one stint in hospital. It wasn't, that wasn't her life. Yeah. And it, and it sounds like, um, you've done a lot of pioneering for testing and support for this disease. What pushed us ahead, especially after we lost Kenzie, was developing Mackenzie's mission and doing a lot of the work around genetic carrier screening because I was able to throw myself into it um, and, again, feel like I was still being her mum because I was working for her. Yeah. Was it through that that you got to hear other stories? Yeah, um, it was, it's mostly through my Instagram that became such a source of power and like of other people giving me power, positivity, um, stories, people sharing. It's, it really blew my mind because I really didn't expect it to come from that. But now I've got so many people around me of, and it's not necessarily about SMA, but other people who have gone through children with terminal conditions or sick children and genetics, stories about genetics, which ties into Mackenzie's mission. So hearing other people's stories is just, it's incredible. Like you, sometimes it can be really tiring. I have a lot of people who reach out and tell me their stories, but I'm so careful to write back as much as I can because I feel ridiculously honoured that they're sharing their child's life with me. Mm. Yes. Can you um, tell us about Mackenzie's mission and what you've achieved? So SMA is one of thousands of genetic conditions um, that we can pass on to our children when they're born. Um, every single one of us have genetic flaws in us. In fact, everyone on average has three to five genetic conditions that they hold in their DNA that they could pass on to their child. Whether they do or not is up to who you end up having the child with. So it turned out that both Johnny and I carried the defective SMA gene, which is what unlocked Mackenzie to have be affected by it. So um, if you look on the Genes for Genes Day website, one in 20 children is born with a genetic condition or a birth defect. Wow, that's really high. It is really high. Obviously, those genetic conditions differ and it also includes birth defects, but um, it's so high and I was starting to go, well, wait a minute, why is no one talking about this? And then we found out that we could have we could have discovered what genetic conditions we held in our DNA 
when we were doing all of the months of planning to get pregnant that I did. And all it would have been is just a mouth swab, just a simple saliva swab, and you can find out what genetic conditions you carry. And we would have been able to find out that we would have had a high risk of having a child with a genetic condition. So finding this out, we said, well, if this swab exists, why are we not using it? And they said, oh, we only use it for people who have a family history. And then we found out that four out of five children born with a genetic condition have no family history. So you're missing four out of five children and you're missing them just by doing it based on family history. That's not right. And so hearing all of that, we went, we need to create change. So we campaigned the government. I wrote the letter that a month after Mackenzie was diagnosed telling the Australian government what I felt needed to be changed. And I was really driven by anger at that point that, um, that this was happening every day and no one was changing it or speaking about it. But at that time, we also had a bunch of really amazing medical um, professionals who were also campaigning the government at the same time. So we were really lucky. We I sent the, the letter to every single member of parliament. My parents hand-delivered them and we started to get responses back from people and a couple of the responses we got back was from the then treasurer Scott Morrison um, and also from the federal health minister Greg Hunt and they promised change and they delivered because I wrote to them in what um, June 2017 and in May 2018 in the budget they announced a 500 million dollar genomics project in Australia and the first pilot project was going to be a 20 million dollar pilot project in introducing genetic carrier screening, so that simple mouth swab, um, to Australia. So we're in the middle of a research project and that's called Mackenzie's Mission. Congratulations. Thank you. That is so beautiful. So the people listening now that are like, oh, my God, I'm pregnant, oh, my God, I want to conceive, I didn't know all of this information, Mm. can they – go to their GP and ask for this swab or do you have to be qualified somehow? So the swab already exists outside of Mackenzie's mission. It's existed for years. It's just a user pays system. So it costs a few hundred dollars and um, but anyone can get it. Mackenzie's mission is still a research project. Our hope is that in two years time it'll be rolled out. So then, you know, in in a couple of years, hopefully it'll start being commonplace that if you go to the doctor and are planning a pregnancy or, or I own the first trimester, they'll just they'll just offer you the test routinely for free, covered under the Australian government, which is amazing. At the moment, you can go to your GP and ask if they or your obstetrician or your IVF clinic and ask if they're enrolled in Mackenzie's mission. If they are, then you can be a part of it. If they're not, you just have to um, find one of the other health providers that offer it and pay. You'd have a link to that on your website? I do. I write blogs about it. It's on my website, um, which is mylifeoflove.com. It's on my Instagram. And it's also um, it's on a page on mackenziesmission.org, um, which shows you where you can go. It's, um, you know, there's one that actually even has afterpay and they send it to you in the mail like it's it's so easy and so advanced these days and it's only going to get more 
easily accessed. And I think it's important to note as well that for people who get a bit nervous about genetics and all that, we're looking, the only things that these testing screen for are severe and life-threatening genetic conditions. It's not about picking sex or hair colour or eye colour. You know, it's about conditions like SMA. And what's the difference then? You know, we get the Harmony test, we get all of these other tests. Mm. It seems redundant if you're going to miss out the majority of the other things that could go wrong. So the two tests that I recommend to people is one is the Harmony, but that's what you get when you're pregnant and it checks the baby's chromosomes, whereas genes sit inside chromosomes. And when you're talking about genetic carrier screening, you're talking about testing parents to see what it is that they carry. So that's why you can get it done before you're even pregnant. So the two tests that I recommend is um, one before you get pregnant or in early pregnancy to see what genetic conditions you hold, so inside those chromosomes, and then one when you're actually pregnant to check the baby for chromosome conditions. It's just such a game changer. Like it would change everything. I know that I have um, thalassemia minor and I grew up knowing that, but not until I was thinking about falling pregnant did I go, oh, I need to find out if my husband is a carrier. But this is like people have these genetic conditions and have no idea. It it can, this, I mean, you never want anyone to go through what you went through ever. No, no, ever. Ah, and I just, look, lots of people won't be able to afford that $300 test. So I think what you're campaigning for is so paramount, so vital. Um, And what a legacy for Mackenzie. What a legacy. We are so ridiculously proud. Like I sit on some of the committees for the Mackenzie's Mission Research Project to get it up and running. And when I hear people call it Mackenzie's Mission or um, when I just, when I sit back and I think of, so like sometimes I get emails from people who have gone through the testing and found out that, um, for instance, that their child was going to have a condition, but that that condition has a treatment. So, and the earlier you have it, the better. So it meant that for them, they would still get pregnant naturally, but their baby would be able to get that treatment as soon as they were born. They don't have to waste time. Yes. How are you and... Johnny going now with moving forward and looking into the future of children? It is a harder road. Like, you know, if Johnny and I had found out that, like once we found out that we were carriers, we've been trying to have another baby and we've been doing IVF where you can actually screen the embryos to see. So then we're only putting back the embryos that don't have SMA. Um, It's been really a hard road. We've gone through nine rounds of IVF. Um, I've lost another two children at 14 weeks pregnant, um, but we are currently pregnant. I am um, 13 weeks pregnant with a little boy um, and all the testing so far is looking good. So we're really starting to allow ourselves to think, you know, maybe this, maybe we can be happy, you know. 2020 has been so interesting because it's been such a hard year in so many ways. But for us, our book about Mackenzie came out. Mackenzie's mission started testing couples. Um, 
and we lost a little boy at the start of this year, which was desperately hard, but now we're pregnant again. And, you know, that comes with its own emotions. Like even just finding out that we're having a boy is is so beautiful, but then you start to think about Mackenzie's possessions and her clothes and, you know, you start to feel guilty and hope that you can be a family with Mackenzie and that she won't be pushed aside in any way from anyone's minds. So it's a, it's a juggle. It's, it's, it always will be, but we're in a really good space right now and we hope that we get to stay here. Congratulations. Thank you. I was concerned, you know, that um, just as having a duty of care to talk about this today is, you know, it's a lot, it's big. And being early in your pregnancy, I was really concerned for your well-being. But you were adamant. Yep. <laughs> that we continue. Um, and I just want to check in with how that feels for you. I try really hard, especially through the book and Instagram and just talking to people to let them know. I think that people don't know how to handle grief. No, no one does and no one wants to, but it's so amazing to me that in life we are born and we die and they're pretty much the only certainties but still as a society we pretend that the dying part doesn't happen and we don't know how to handle it and I try really hard because we have had people around us who have been amazing and we've had people around us who have been horrible and one of the things that I try to get people to realize is that especially parents who have lost a child, not all the time, but most of the time, they want to talk about their child. They desperately want to talk about their child. And so bringing it up and going through it for me, yeah, I, I've cried talking to you, but I, that's okay. It's okay for me to cry because it actually gives me a nice release and it lets me talk about her and be her mom and, it's it's just it's not something I think people try to avoid to bring things up and it's always sitting there with a, a parent who's lost. It's just mm. getting to be able to release it and say it. So I don't think we need to be as scared about it whilst it's appreciative. It's I love speaking about her. What an episode. My final question to you is... Who are you when no one's watching? I, I'm more comfortable when no one's watching. I, um, I'm not an extrovert. I don't like large groups. I don't like competing with personalities. Um, so I'm more comfortable when no one's watching. I, am a lot more driven and a lot more passionate than I think people realise, especially like my empathy is, you know, it's just I get really worked up 
when I see things that I feel aren't right. And to the point where I start, I, you know, I can't follow people on Instagram or anything that aren't using their voice or their power or their money for good because I wish mm. that if I could, if I could, if I had that sort of money and that sort of power, you know, what I would do for sick children, what I would do to try to right some of the wrongs in the world. So I think when no one's watching, I'm a lot more focused. Yeah, I, it's a hard question. <laughs> but, um, yeah. You answered it beautifully. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your heart with us today. I just appreciate the fact that you want to hear about her and you want to hear about our story and that, you know, we're not, we're not forgotten about because it's too hard. And I have to be honest, I had deep, deep resistance to this conversation, mm. partly because of your pregnancy and because I'm trying to protect you, but also because it is my greatest fear. And yeah. I think that's even more reason to sit through that pain with you and to share it with everyone. So thank you. Thank you for persisting <laughs> with me. <laughs> and um, and I, I'm just really proud of the work you're doing. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting, it's quirky, it's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you'll hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.